is Hinter Tales. I'm Rachel Dunstan Muller with stories of curious people, places, and events from the margins of history. The story that I'm about to share is one that I've told on numerous occasions to live audiences. It is my favorite adventure story of all time, and one I never get tired of telling, and I hope you enjoy it too. Men Wanted for Hazardous Journey Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness. Safe return? Doubtful. That's the notice that Ernest Shackleton supposedly puts in the Times of London in December 1913. Despite this rather dubious description, more than 5,000 men and a few brave women apply to be part of Shackleton's Antarctic expedition. But in the end, only 27 men are chosen to accompany him on the Endurance, a hybrid sailing and steamship built especially for polar expeditions. The Endurance and its crew sail out of London on August 1, 1914, bound first for Buenos Aires and then on to South Georgia, an island roughly 1,600 miles east of the southern tip of South America. They arrive at Stromness, one of South Georgia's whaling stations, in early November, and the crew spends a month provisioning before they leave again on December 5th. The plan is simple. The Endurance will carry them 1,000 miles south to the coast of Antarctica, and then Shackleton and five companions will disembark with their provisions and 70 Canadian sled dogs. The members of the Trans-Antarctic Expedition will then ski through the South Pole to the far side of the continent, where a second ship will meet them. Things don't go quite as anticipated, however. December is high summer in the Southern Hemisphere, but of course it's never really summer in Antarctica, and 1914 turns out to be a particularly bad year for pack ice. The surface of the sea around Antarctica is frozen for hundreds of miles out. Now, this doesn't worry the crew, at least not at first. After all, the endurance was made for these conditions. Her oak keel is a full seven feet thick, and her entire hull is sheathed in green heart, a wood heavier than iron. They're feeling quite confident as they nose their way slowly through the frozen sea. But then, just 80 miles from the coast of Antarctica, they hit pack ice that's too thick even for the endurance, and the ship is forced to lie to while they wait for the ice to open up. But it doesn't. At one point, they can see open water just 400 yards ahead, and the crew spends two 
back-breaking days trying to chop a channel through the ice with pickaxes and saws. But they can't do it. And by the end of February, as temperatures plummet and winter returns to the southern hemisphere with a vengeance, Shackleton is forced to admit that the endurance is trapped. Well, what can the crew do but make the best of this change in plans? These are loyal men, chosen as much for their good natures as for their stamina and their skills. The first three months are relatively easy. They are beyond radio contact, but they still have plenty of fuel and provisions. While there's enough light, they pass their time training the sled dogs and playing hockey and football on the ice floes. And then, when darkness settles over them for good, in a long Antarctic night that stretches on almost three months, they hunker down in the ship, reading, playing cards, making interesting meals, telling stories. And so they survive that first winter. In fact, they more than survive. They're in good spirits. Spring is going to free them. They will soon be returning to their families and everything else that they've left behind. Spring does not free them. Instead, the shifting ice begins to squeeze the endurance, to grind and crush its hull until it literally shudders and groans every moment of the day and night. At the end of October, after a two-month assault, the ice finally wins. The bilge pump simply can't keep up with the seawater flooding both the forward hold and the engine room, and Shackleton is forced to give the order to abandon ship. The men set up a makeshift camp on the ice with the supplies they've offloaded. Essentially, they are camped on an immense floating ice raft, a raft which is carrying them ever further out to sea. The nearest food and shelter lies in a primitive rock hut on Tiny Paulette Island, which is now 350 miles away. Shackleton assesses their situation and then announces the new plan. They will haul their sleds and three lifeboats across the pack ice until they reach open water, and then they will row the remaining distance to Paulette Island. Well, this would be a workable plan if the pack ice were smooth, but in reality it is a tortuous maze of cracks and ridges. Hauling the boats turns out to be tedious, back-breaking work, and after just a few days, it's clear that they will only weaken and endanger themselves if they continue. So, a new plan is made. They will stay where they are for the time being and hope that the pack ice drifts in a favorable direction. Now, as you can imagine, camping on sea ice is anything but pleasant. It is brutally cold, and the men go to sleep every night knowing that only five feet of frozen water separates them from 2,000 fathoms of ocean. 
By mid-December, a full year after their departure from South Georgia, the ice pack begins to soften and the men start marching again, this time through pools of knee-deep ice water. After five days and a mere seven and a half miles of progress, exhaustion forces them to stop a second time. Rations are dwindling. The sled dogs have to be put down. The men's spirits sink. By April, the ice pack has carried them well out of reach of tiny Paulette Island. Their only hope now is Clarence Island or Elephant Island, both 100 miles to the north. When the ice flow finally breaks up literally beneath them, they launch the three lifeboats. But their sea voyage has barely begun when they find themselves caught in a raging vortex of ice and water. The men pull on their oars with all their might and manage to escape the riptide. But this is only the beginning of an arduous journey that stretches on for six days and nights as they navigate with primitive equipment, half-frozen, sleeping in shifts, eating just one ship's biscuit each day. On the sixth night, they're caught in a ferocious gale which nearly swamps one of the boats. They bail all through the night, and in the morning, they spy the sea cliffs of Elephant Island. All three lifeboats manage to make it to shore on April 15th, and the men stumble out. It is the first time that they have stood on solid ground in almost 500 days. Reaching land is a victory for sure. There's fresh water, seals and penguins for food. But the men don't celebrate. They are cold, wet, half-starved, and Elephant Island is little more than rock and ice. There's no shelter from the gales and blizzards that batter the island constantly. And they are still hundreds of miles, even from a shipping lane. If they're going to survive, they are going to have to go and get help themselves. Once again, Shackleton assesses their situation. South Georgia and its whaling stations are 800 miles to the northeast. It's not the nearest land, but it is in the right direction, given the prevailing winds and currents. To reach it, however, they will have to navigate with a sextant and a chronometer, which will be extremely difficult given the horrendous weather and the roughness of the sea. And if they're out by even a single degree, they will be disastrously off course, heading out to open ocean and certain death. But there really is no other option. A blizzard rages around the crew as they cannibalize two of the lifeboats to make the third boat, the 23-foot James Caird, as seaworthy as they can. Then Shackleton and five carefully chosen companions embark on one of the most perilous sea journeys in history. 
For 15 days and nights, they ride mountainous swells through one gale after another, their boat encased in ice and perpetually on the point of capsizing. They are wet, cramped, exhausted, their skin blistered, their tongue swollen with thirst, and they can only pray, pray that their desperate calculations will keep them on course. Thanks to the horrendous weather, their navigation ends up depending almost entirely on dead reckoning and intuition. So you can imagine their elation when they catch their first glimpse of the black cliffs of South Georgia through the clouds. And you can imagine their despair when that victory is snatched away almost immediately by one of the worst hurricanes that any of them has ever experienced. The men are in a 23-foot boat in the middle of a raging hurricane in the most dangerous sea in the world. In Shackleton's words, a seething chaos of tortured weather. They are certain they're going to die. And in fact, a ship does go down in the storm that night. A 500-ton steamer on its way from Buenos Aires. But to Shackleton and his companions' astonishment, their own little boat somehow manages to stay afloat through the night. And as dusk falls on the following evening, they're able to land on South Georgia. They are so dehydrated and weakened after their journey that even after emptying the boat completely, the six men are unable to pull it fully out of the water. They have arrived on the south side of the island, but the whaling stations are on the north side, another 150 miles around the rugged coast. Both the lifeboat and the men themselves are literally falling apart. Two of the men are completely incapacitated. It's highly unlikely they could survive another sea journey, even a relatively short one. And so Shackleton and the two other men who are best able to still stand at this point decide to cross the island on foot instead, through uncharted mountains and glaciers that most people consider impassable. They have a 50-foot rope to help them over crevasses, a carpenter's adze to use as an ice axe, and boots studded with screws taken from the lifeboat. That is the extent of their technical equipment. They don't bring anything that will weigh them down, not even sleeping bags. They want to cover as much ground as quickly as possible. The three men begin their desperate trek at 2 a.m. on a moonlit morning, trudging and stumbling, climbing and descending and climbing again. Of course, they have no map to guide them, so when they inevitably reach a dead end, when they find the way forward blocked by a high peak or a sheer cliff or some other obstacle, they are forced to backtrack losing precious hours as they hunt for another way through the frozen maze. As the light 
fades and fog descends at the end of their first day, the men find themselves on a ridge, 4,500 feet above sea level. It is a deadly place to be. If they don't get down to the next valley before night falls, they will freeze to death. That is a certainty. So even though they can't see where the steep slope in front of them ends, it could very well go over a cliff. They do what they have to do. They coil their rope into a sled and launch themselves into the unknown. Sixty seconds and more than a thousand vertical feet later, they scramble from their landing place in a snowbank. The hair-raising adventures continue as they trek on through the night. And when dawn breaks, they are rewarded with a view of the ocean ahead of them. They've made it across the island, but they are still 3,000 feet above sea level, and without a map, they have no way of knowing whether they've reached the right part of the coast. They can only hold their breath as they watch their chronometer. And at precisely 7 a.m., they hear the sweetest sound that any of them has ever heard. A steam whistle calling the men to work at the Norwegian whaling station of Stromness. It takes Shackleton and his two companions another eight hours, eight grueling hours, to descend to the very same whaling station they departed from 18 months earlier. People actually flee from them as the three men stagger into the station. They are half-starved, dressed in filthy rags with blackened faces and long, matted hair and beards. Even the station master himself doesn't recognize them until Shackleton tells him who they are. And when he does, a whaler standing nearby turns away and weeps. A boat is sent out immediately for the three men sheltering on the other side of South Georgia. But of course, Shackleton's ordeal won't truly be over until he has borrowed a ship and returned to Elephant Island to rescue the remainder of his crew. But even this doesn't go as planned. Sea ice blocks his way, and it takes him four attempts over three months to make it back. Shackleton's eyes are glued to the shore as the rescue ship finally approaches Elephant Island on August 30th, 1916. With the help of binoculars, he counts each man silhouetted on shore and then shouts with more emotion than he's shown at any point on the entire journey. They're all there, Skipper. Safe return, doubtful indeed, and yet every last man on that incredible expedition made it home. I'd like to close the story 
with Shackleton's own words, taken from his book, South, The Last Antarctic Expedition of Shackleton and the Endurance, which served as my primary source. When I look back at those days, Shackleton wrote, I do not doubt that Providence guided us, not only across those snowfields, but also across the stormy White Sea which separated Elephant Island from our landing place on South Georgia. I know that during the long march of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains and glaciers of South Georgia, it often seemed to me that we were four, not three. And my two companions had the same idea. A record of our journey would not be complete without reference to a subject very near to our hearts. A quick afternote. It could be argued that, given how famous Shackleton has become as the subject of countless books, documentaries, and movies, he isn't exactly a marginal historical figure. And yet at the time of his now-famous expedition, Shackleton and his crew were very much overshadowed by other world events. The First World War was just getting underway when the Endurance sailed out of London, and in fact Shackleton proposed to cancel the expedition and repeatedly offered the ship and its crew to the service of the British Navy. But he was ordered by the Admiralty, with the authority of the King, to proceed. Almost three years later, when Shackleton and his crew finally returned to England, the world was still immersed in the chaos of war, which meant that they received little attention. Sadly, Shackleton did not live to see his eventual fame. He was back on South Georgia on the eve of another Antarctic expedition when he suffered a fatal heart attack in the early hours of the morning on January 5, 1922. He was just 47 years old. At his wife's request, he was buried in a cemetery on South Georgia. In the words of his friend and expedition surgeon, Dr. Alexander Macklin, I think this is as the boss would have had it himself, standing lonely in an island far from civilization, surrounded by stormy, tempestuous seas, and in the vicinity of one of his greatest exploits. This episode of Hinter Tales was written, narrated, and produced by Rachel Dunstan Muller, with music and sound effects by zapsplat.com. Learn more about my work at racheldunstanmuller.com. <laughs>